guidance and answers. Do you ever find it hard to share your faith in a way that would make sense to others? Sometimes the only way to share it is by living it and letting others watch. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will be interviewing a well-educated man, an author and scholar in the Christian arena, Oz Guinness. The discussion at hand will be about his new book, Fool's Talk. Now here's Pat along with Oz Guinness. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we present the compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the challenges Christians face today. Well, how do we engage our post-Christian culture with the message of Christ? How do we communicate effectively with a culture that does not want to hear our message? Well, to help us with this challenge is Dr. Oz Guinness, who's written a terrific book that addresses this challenge. Now, before we get into the book, let me tell you a little bit about our guest here. Oz Guinness is a well-known author and Christian scholar and social critic. Dr. Guinness was born in China in World War II, where both his parents and grandparents were medical missionaries, and his grandfather had the privilege of treating the last emperor and the imperial family. Oz Guinness received his doctorate in the social sciences from Oxford University. He is the founder of the Trinity Forum and has spoken before the British House of Commons, the U.S. Congress, the St. Petersburg Parliament, and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. He is a popular author and speaker on university campuses throughout the world and author of numerous books, including one of my favorite, A Free People's Suicide, and Time for Truth and God in the Dark. So with us today, we have the great privilege of having Dr. Oz Guinness. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Pat. A real privilege to be with you again. Well, tell us about the title of your book. What is the meaning behind the title here, Fool's Talk? Well, I should tell you what the purpose of the book is first. Okay. You know, clearly, we're not where the Church was in the 1950s, where you had a Christian consensus, and everyone understood Christian, as it were, and maybe even could speak it. And you could speak in simple, straightforward ways. But you can see since then, public life has grown infinitely more secular. Many people would like to drive Christian voices out altogether. And private life has grown infinitely more diverse. So we need to rediscover persuasion and know how to speak to people wherever they're coming from, and especially people who are not open, not interested, and not needy. And that's one of the crying needs of today. So that's the purpose behind this book, this rediscovery of persuasion. And what's the meaning of the title here, Fool's Talk? Well, I think that the deepest way of persuasion lies in understanding the secret of what the Bible might call fool-making. There are three kinds of fool in Scripture. There's what I call the fool proper, the person who's really an idiot, ultimately because the Lord says so. And then you have a second fool in Scripture, the fool for Christ, the person who's a fool-bearer, not actually an idiot at all but prepared to be seen and treated as one for Christ's sake. Now, obviously, that idea goes back to 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul said he was prepared to be seen by the Corinthians as a fool for Christ. He wasn't one. But the really interesting fool that helps our persuasion is the third fool, the fool-maker, the person prepared to be seen as a fool, treated as a fool, 
They're using that position almost like a jester to bounce back and address truth to power. And that isn't 1 Corinthians 4, that's 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says something incredibly daring, that the Lord, to reach our rebel hearts, he who is all-wise comes looking foolish. He who is all-powerful comes incognito as a non-entity, and so on. In other words, the incarnation and the cross are subversive. And the deepest communication, as you see in the parables of Jesus, or the parables, say, Nathan to David, they share that dynamic subversion, and that's what I'm talking about in the book. How do we reach people who are closed? Now, you stated that public life has become more secular, and you state that we're in a post-Christian culture. Well, just briefly, I know this is a loaded question, but tell us how that happened, how we went from a theistic based kind of culture to now a more humanistic or even naturalistic kind of culture. Tell us how that shift happened. Well, there's no question that the Jewish and Christian faiths are the defining faith, the working faith of the Western world. But in the last 200 years, and it varies in different countries, France, England, America, you can see a, a double problem. On the one hand, open militant assaults from atheists, secularists, people like that. You can think of the new atheists today. And on the other hand, the weakening of the Church by its captivity under the institutions of advanced modernity. Now put those two together, and you can see the Christian faith is at its weakest ebb in the Western world at large, increasingly weak in America too. And so I would argue, and this is actually my next book, we're at a stage where secularists are attempting the completion of the takeover from the Jewish and Christian faiths with their own faith. Now, I think we're post-Christian. I don't think we're yet non-Christian. And so we're in a kind of interim period. And if you say, Pat, that the 4th century, you know, under the Romans, the 4th century was the interim century between pagan Rome and the rise of the Christian faith, which took over from pagan Rome. So many people say today, if things go on as they are now, we're in the interim century between the Christian faith as the defining faith of the West and progressive secularism taking over. Now, I don't think that the takeover is complete, and I hope we see a reversal and a revival. That is a great analysis. Now, you talk about the weakening of the Church. What do you mean by that? How has the Church become weaker in its position? Well, you look at, say, modernism, secularism, atheism. They say bluntly, there is no God, we don't want God. Militant, hostile, explicit. But by the weakening of the Church under the impact of modernity, and I would argue, many people do, that modernity, no, not ideas, modernity has done more damage to the Church than all the persecutors in history put together. What do I mean? Well, you look at how... We've shifted from a culture of authority, Christians are people under authority, to a culture of preference. Our choices today are all a matter of preference, whim, whatever you choose, whatever. In other words, in our modern supermarket world of hyper-consumerism, the content of what you choose doesn't matter. It can be this or that or the other. It's the fact that you have a choice at all, and it's merely your preference. And so you can choose a thousand cereals, and you can choose between a thousand religions, and they all mean much the same. And so, Pat, that's yours. You're a Christian. You know, 
I'm a Muslim, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a New Asia. It's just a matter of preference. Well, that sort of thing, the impact of consumerism is just as deadly as some of the more open philosophies like relativism. Wow, you know, I don't see a whole lot written on consumerism and the church. So are you saying that's pretty much the primary ideology of modernism that's really weakening the foundation of the church? Well, not modernism, Pat. I'm saying modernism, in ending in ISM, like postmodernism, ending in ISM, those are sets of ideas. And you can be a believer in modernism or postmodernism. You can be argued out of them, click your fingers, and you can be a non-modernist or a non-postmodernist. But modernity, ending in ITY, that includes everything from the Industrial Revolution right down to our cell phones, satellites, cars, television, you name it. You can't go post-modernity like the way you can go post-modernist. No, you can't flick your fingers and get to another world short of a nuclear disaster or the Lord's return. And so many Christians, they're very aware. Now, apologetics is good when it makes us aware of the bad ideas around today, the new atheists such as Richard Dawkins. But many apologists don't do such a good job in analyzing our culture, and that's equally important. Wow. Well, what do you mean by that, that we're not good at analyzing our culture? Where, where, where have we failed in that process? Well, we haven't got the right tools. In other words, for, the, for our ideas, you need the history of ideas, which is simply the idea that every idea has an ancestry, a family tree, a genealogy, as Friedrich Nietzsche put it. That's relatively easy. You can go back and you can trace the family tree of atheism, all the way back to Democritus and Lucretius and people like this. But there are many things in our modern world which are equally powerful that don't come from any philosopher. Let me give you a simple example. You take, at the heart of the modern world, I'm sure Hawaii too, is what's called fast life. In other words, the 24-7 pressure of a world that's lived life at warp speed, business at the speed of light, and all this sort of stuff. 24-7 pressure. Where on earth does fast life come from? You couldn't find a single philosopher or psychologist or anything else that's created it. Where does it come from? It comes from the clock. You know, Africans have a saying, all Westerners have watches, Africans have time. The clock was invented in 1300, but it was industrialized and coordinated in the 19th century. And today, with atomic time, we're all running at incredible speed down to microseconds and microseconds and so on. And you can see this comes from the clock, not from a philosopher. Now, to understand that, it has a terrific impact on us. We're mesmerized by the future and being relevant and up to date. And you can see Christians chasing relevance like fury, foolishly because they don't realize they're actually incredibly worldly. So the world is more than just ideas. It's a matter of culture, and we need to have not only history of ideas to understand philosophy, we need to have cultural analysis, a tool to understand all the crazy things going on in our fascinating modern world. Well, that's fascinating. So how do Christians you know, live out the life of a Christian disciple in the midst of this modernity and what's going on around us? Well, our Lord calls us to be, as you know, in the world, but not of the world. That obviously means you have two extremes which are wrong, 
and powerless. One is to be so otherworldly that we're no earthly use. The other is to be so worldly that we're in the world and of it and we're no earthly use. Now, how on earth are we in it but not of it? That tension is tough. Well, it takes first engagement, got to be in it, and then secondly, discernment. We've got to know whether the world is a matter of the good, the true, and the beautiful, or it's really the false and the ugly and the dangerous. In other words, you need discernment. And many Christians, since they don't have any cultural analysis, for instance, what does a cell phone do to you? Well, one of the things a cell phone undermines, if you're not careful, is a biblical view of incarnate presence. You, you, you've seen these photographs or cartoons of six teenagers at a table. They're not looking at each other or even talking to each other. They're texting each other. They're crazy, as one scholar puts it. They're together alone. Well, that undermines a Christian view of presence, and you can see how deadly that is. But you need the tools of cultural analysis in order to understand the world. Now, the third thing, you need engagement, discernment, and then courage. In other words, wherever the world is wrong or different from the kingdom of our Lord, we have to stand against it and live his way, not the world's way. Wow, boy, that is fascinating topic that modernity has really overshadowed and overcome the church, and many of us don't realize it unless guys like you, you know, point it out to us. That's just... Oh, absolutely. Pat, I would say modernity has done more damage than all the persecutors in 2,000 years put together. Because when the church is attacked frontally, say Nero or Mao Zedong, the church responds wonderfully. And as we know, sadly, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But modernity is not like, it doesn't attack us like, it doesn't need God. It doesn't say there is no God. We can put a man in the moon, we can market a perfume, you can grow a church. You could go online and find how to grow a church today, the parking lot size you need, and so on. From nuts to bolt, you know, from, you, the whole thing's there. You don't need God. That's the subtlety of modernity. We've come closer than any generation in history to being able to take the words of Jesus to live by bread alone. Very important what you're pointing out here. Now, when it comes to your book, Fool's Talk here, you state, we as Christians have lost the art of Christian persuasion, and we must recover it. Well, how have we lost it? Well, many, for example, in America, there's a huge reliance on formulae and recipes and one, two, three, four techniques. Probably the most wonderful of them all is the four spiritual laws. But the simple fact is Jesus never spoke to two people the same way, and nor should we. And if you reduce things to a formula, you can do it with engineering a car or making an omelet, but you can't do it with evangelism or apologetics. In other words, everyone's different. Jesus spoke to everyone differently. And so one of the basic questions we've got to ask, is the person I'm talking to open, in which case the gospel, simply and straightforwardly, is thoroughly relevant? But if they're not open they're closed or indifferent or hostile or a happy-go-lucky surfer or whatever, and they're not open, we have to speak different ways. And trouble is, most Christians only have one gear. They know how to share the gospel. They don't know how to speak to people who are closed. And, of course, that's the calling, the task of apologetics. Yes. Now, you also state in your introduction there, you said, the daily communications of the wired world attest that everyone is now in the business of relentless self-promotion. 
presenting themselves, explaining themselves, defending themselves, selling themselves, or sharing their inner thoughts and emotions as never before in human history. That is why it can be said that we are in the grand secular age of apologetics. The whole world is taken up in apologetics without ever using or knowing the idea as Christians understand it. Well, explain to us what you mean by that. Well, I came across that actually in a secular sociological magazine. At first, I was stunned because apologetics is our word. It's in our DNA as Christians. Yeah. But I realized what they mean. You can see everyone, says, as I said in those sentences, they're in the business to present. Facebook is the daily me, published for the world, and so on. Everyone's in the business of that, and one of the problems of it is our world is suffering from inattention. Everybody's speaking, emailing, Skyping, texting, you name it. Nobody's really listening. And it's harder than ever to really get across to people because of this babel of sounds of commercials and advertisements and all the things we just mentioned. You know, that's our crazy age. So here we are as Christians, followers of Jesus. We're the people who have a passionate reason to share the gospel. This means everything to us, to know him, and to make him known. But in some ways, it's harder than ever. So we've got to dig deep back into the biblical understanding of how you speak powerfully to people who are not particularly interested. Now, you state that people are not interested in the gospel. We are, well, appear not to be interested in the gospel. We're living in post-Christian times. But you also state in your book that our age is quite simply the greatest opportunity for Christian witness since the time of Jesus and the apostles. And our response should be to seize the opportunity with bold and imaginative enterprise. Could you explain why we find ourselves in an age of, as you say, unprecedented opportunity for sharing Christ? Well, just take what I mentioned earlier about consumerism. It's pointed out in the modern world, everybody is conversion-prone, as they put it. In other words, our consumer society, you always want to look for the latest, greatest thing. You know, you've got an iPhone 1. Oh, my goodness, that's so, yes. You have a BlackBerry? That's Neanderthal. And so on. We always want the latest, greatest. So everyone's always looking out for a new, new thing, rather like people in Athens that Paul spoke to. So modern people are described as conversion-prone. There's always a new something that's better than the old thing they had. They want it. They want it. Now, that means more people are more open than ever before. But what it also means is that evangelism is easier, discipleship is harder. A long obedience with an integrative faith through the whole of life, whatever the costs, that's tough. So evangelism is actually easier, and discipleship's harder. But then you take other factors, Pat, like an obvious one, like technology. Take the Internet. It is powerful. You can reach the entire world in seconds. And it's affordable, it's cheap, it's free, and so on. So in some ways, technologically and in terms of the culture, more people are open than ever before. And yet, because of the babel of voices and the inattention, we've got to be really sure that they're listening and we're making sense of them, especially if they're closed. Now, you say despite the opportunity, you say Christians have fallen short in our efforts to share the gospel with the world today. Why is that the case? Well, I think because of the reliance on the formulae and the recipes. You know, as I said, I knew Bill Bright, and I love the incredible fruitfulness of the four spiritual laws. But it simply doesn't fit everybody. I remember once in the days of hitchhiking, 
I was with a Christian friend from Crusade who was sharing uh, sharing his faith with the driver. And he gave the four spirit, you know, the first of the four laws, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And the driver said, oh, I know all that. And he gave the second, third, and fourth law. He knew it so well, he wasn't interested. It was like water off a duck's back. And that's the trouble with recipes and formulae. People are speaking too soon. There's no point coming out with things unless people are ready. The gospel is good news, we know that, for good news to people in a bad situation. And when they're in a bad situation, it's very good news. But for most people, they're not even aware they're in a bad situation. That's where apologetics comes in to raise the questions that the gospel becomes the answer to. Now, you also have some critical remarks about, I guess, the modern approach of apologetics. You, you state that apologetics has come to be all about the arguments and winning the arguments rather than winning hearts and minds and people. Uh, explain to us a little bit about what you mean by that and how apologetics should be properly utilized in evangelism. Well, obviously, we'd all agree that the point of persuasion is to win a person, not win an argument. And the trouble is, over the centuries, because apologists have rightly answered philosophers and others at a very intellectual level, often apologetics arguments are left at that level. And you can see the danger, then, is to over-intellectualize apologetics, or to put such a stress on good arguments that we forget the people we're trying to persuade. Now, there were some really bad cases in the 1960s, when there was a particular well-known Christian apologist who debated some of the leading atheists of the day. And it was routinely said about him, he won the debate and lost the audience. In other words, he lost the debate. And that's absolutely disastrous. It's always the person. Now, one of the three people my book owes a great deal to is Francis Schaeffer. And he was the best one-to-one apologist I've ever seen because he loved the Lord passionately, he loved people passionately, and he loved truth passionately. But take people. You watched him, and a couple of minutes he's talking to someone, you can see his eyes beginning to well with tears. He didn't cry, but the empathy in his eyes, he got into someone's story and life. There was such compassion, he was interested in them, not just winning an argument. So we've got to get away from an over-intellectualized apologetics. We can be as deep and profound as the questions are deep and profound. At the end of the day, it's people we're trying to win, not arguments. So you're saying we've become overly dependent on the technique rather than customizing our approach to each individual person. Is that the heart of what you're saying here? That's right. Now, when I say Jesus never talked to two people the same way, Our Lord obviously had the power of the Spirit, and therefore instant discernment. We don't. So we pray, but we've got to first love someone enough to listen to them. And questions come in as we ask humble, courteous, interested questions to find out where they are, where they've come from. Tell me a story. A person's philosophy is much more than their biography. But the biographical part of their story is often a very important part that's a key to whatever it is they believe now. So we've got to get into that. Only when we've loved and listened enough do we have an idea. Are they, for example, open or closed? And we'll talk differently when they're open and differently when they're closed. Now that sounds like a very challenging technique for the average, say, <laughs> uh, Christian out there because 
you know, when we engage someone, we want to direct the conversation. We want to go in the field where we're comfortable. But when you're saying you need to listen to them and see where they're at, it seems like we may go in a direction that perhaps we're not able to engage or anything. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers.